to Line of Sight. My name is Don Heider. I'm the Executive Director of the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. And I'm Thane Kreiner, Executive Director of Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University. Today, we're delighted to have with us Alex Dagan. Alex is CEO of Conservation X Labs, an innovation and technology startup focused on ending human-induced extinction. By way of full disclosure, I serve on the board for Conservation X Labs. Under Alex's leadership, Conservation X Labs has spun off or built new companies and technologies, launched the first set of grand challenges for conservation in areas including aquaculture, artisanal scale mining, cooling technology, and fungal pathogens. Prior to Conservation X Labs, Alex served as chief scientist at the U.S. Agency for International Development, where he headed the Office of Science and Technology and created the vision for and launched the Global Development Lab, uh, the agency's essentially equivalent of DARPA for global development. Prior to USAID, Alex worked in multiple positions at Department of State, notably He was the founding country director for Afghanistan's Wildlife Conservation Society uh, conservation program. The Wildlife Conservation Society in Afghanistan led to the establishment of the country's first national park. Very notably, and I encourage you all to read it, Alex is the author of the book, The Snow Leopard Project, and this describes the effort to create the park in Afghanistan. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today on Line of Sight. We're recording all from our homes as we shelter in place uh, during this time of a global pandemic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why conservation is more important now than ever, particularly in light of the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. We tend to take a responsive or reactive approach to pandemics. But if we look at emerging infectious diseases, 60% of which are essentially zoonotic, and you know these pathogens are um, arising at somewhat at unprecedented rates, not just for humans, but for animals. Zoonotic means that they're shared between humans and animals. And about 15 to 20 years ago, we saw the development of a field called One Health that brought together medicine and veterinary medicine and ecology and evolution together within a single discipline. And one of the things we realized is that some of the devastation that we actually see in terms of the environment, so environmental degradation, uh, wildlife trade, uh, climate change, actually can help give rise uh, to these pathogens and spread these pathogens more easily from wildlife to humans. And that is actually what we saw with or what we suspect with COVID-19 that, you know, at some point there was a jump from bats uh, from bats uh, as a reservoir because of their social systems develop these great immune systems that develop lethal pathogens. Uh, Those bats essentially Uh, through their contact may have directly spread to humans or may have through wildlife trade or spread it indirectly through pangolins, uh, again, through what was called a wet market uh, in Wuhan, China. And then the pathogen made another jump specifically uh, from pangolins or bats to humans and then from humans to among each other. 
And so uh, we're seeing the cost consequences of this, right? We're seeing, you know, the global shutdown of our economies. We're seeing tens of thousands of people uh, dying from this pathogen. We are seeing massive shifts uh, in our society as a result. But we still tend to take what is, I think, a reactive approach uh, to to these emerging infectious diseases instead of saying, how do we actually prevent these diseases from emerging? How do we think of conservation not as a singular discipline separate from international development, including fields like global health, nutrition, food security, uh, and even humanitarian response, but as a way of us actually achieving those larger goals? So that's one way to think about it. And I had actually written a memo when I served on the State Department's policy planning staff in 2005 that that made this point um, that was uh, somewhat forgotten at that time. And it seems like, you know, we're going to see more of these. And part of our goal should be how do we prevent the next 20 of these uh, rather than than just only dealing with the consequences of this one. How can we prevent them? I think we we will not be able to fully prevent them, but we can minimize potential the rate at which they are spreading to, to humans. Right. If we can, you know, if we are looking at right environmental degradation, one of the things it does is stresses animals out, particularly in terms of bats that causes them to shed more. It also puts them in close. There's a larger what's called a larger edge effect. So we saw with the Nipah virus, you know, bats roosting over pig pens of newly cleared forests. And I believe it was Malaysia or Malaysian Borneo that led to the spread of Nipah from bats to pigs, then to humans. Um, So if we can actually minimize those factors, we can reduce the number of opportunities for the spread of disease. I don't think we'll ever get rid of diseases uh, on this planet, but we can do a lot to actually improve the resiliency of our planet uh, by decreasing the stresses on it. And in some ways, this is a great example, you know, of a stress test for a planet based on what we're trying to do for the environment. So, Alex, when you're telling the story about the um, origins of this coronavirus um, and its impact on really all of uh, humanity in pretty profound ways, it, it seems like the start was the fact that people are, are eating endangered species and and you know it's a pretty simple principle that ties back to conservation and and you had anticipated that things like this would happen i think a lot of scientists did and yet there, there wasn't any action really on conservation which i think was the impetus for you saying we need a different approach uh to conservation and therefore founded with paul uh the conservation x labs can you tell us a little bit about why conservation really wasn't working um, and how you guys came up with the idea of Conservation X Labs. I, thank you. I would love to. And and just one point on wildlife trafficking. So pangolins is the number one thing that's trafficked around the world. So if we, it's about five species across Asia and Africa. It is 20% of the wildlife that's trafficked. Uh, on the planet, which is, you know, wildlife trafficking is up there with trafficking in ju- in drugs, uh, in weapons and within in people. Uh, and in fact, it's the same criminal networks that are engaged in those 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 practices. And it's increasingly not, you know, traditional 
practices, it's actually now frequently driven more for wealth than it is for health. Uh, so if we're thinking about this in terms of traditional culture, um, that is definitely true in terms of the things like traditional Chinese medicine has been driving it. But increasingly, things like trafficking for ivory uh, is driven as much about uh, carving ivory in terms of statues and sculptures than it is about uh, impotency medicine, which is a lot of the belief that people had uh, in conservation uh, until people actually started doing studies and trying to understand, actually doing, taking an approach from Silicon Valley called Lean Launchpad to be able to do that. In terms of Conservation X Labs, uh, we got started uh, from a different, a number of different factors. So my co-founder is an uh, amazing guy named Paul Bungie, uh, who was chief scientist at XPRIZE. We're, I was chief scientist at USAID, as you had mentioned, and had developed a, a whole series of sort of innovative approaches to how we think about global development. And what I realized was that in some ways, it wasn't that conservation wasn't succeeding, but it wasn't succeeding fast enough, right? The speed and the scale of the problems that we are dealing with are scaling exponentially with human population growth and the emergence of people into middle class and the demand of consumerism that we see around the world. But our solutions tend to be linear. And in fact, many of our solutions have a whole set of problems around them, right? They tend to be uh, focused on creating things like national parks, which I did in Afghanistan and I've done and helped others do around the world in Russia and in Madagascar, in Brazil. Uh, they tend, you know, they're, they're not focused on what are the actual underlying drivers of extinction. What are the things? You can create a protected area, but if you can't take the pressure off that area, you will not be successful, right? And those pressures come from things like just our demand for meat and dairy, along with things like refrigeration, air conditioning, and cars, all put huge amounts of pressure on the system. So thinking about those underlying drivers was something that we fundamentally wanted to do. And it meant that we looked across the larger SDGs and those solutions. We wanted solutions that we could bring the scale and that were financially sustainable because generally conservation has about 10 percent of the funding that it needs to solve these problems. Uh, and, you know, we needed to think smarter about how we actually saw impact. You know, when you're talking about a billion people in India, you know, a million people or even 10 million people is not necessarily getting the scale. And a lot of conservation efforts are not sustainable in the absence of philanthropy. So thinking about scalability has to be part of what we're trying to do. We wanted solutions that harnessed essentially uh, what we call revolutionary over evolutionary approaches. So how can we actually use new technologies and couple that with rethinking assumptions, uh, particularly where there are existing markets? How can we actually create replacement products for those extinction drivers? How can we think about engineering resilience in those ecosystems? How do we accelerate restoration around what we're doing? How do we improve enforcement? Um, and how do we use sort of this mass democratization of science and technology coupled with sort of bringing in new fields into conservation to be able to do that. Because the one thing we realized is conservationists, which I am one of, you know, by themselves were insufficient to, to solve the problem. They could help define the problems, but they weren't necessarily in ownership of all the solutions that were out there. And then just uh, one other thing is um, we have tended to kind of believe this idea of Arcadia, this, you know, pristine land uh, that all we needed to do was just 
just sort of exempt, uh, remove people from, and we would solve the problem, right? That was it. Well, first, it, that idea of sort of purely pristine, untrammeled uh, places on the planet, even in our places like Antarctica, are just not true, right? We have had a profound impact on the entirety of the planet, and we need to think about quite frankly, that, you know, we need to manage things better. I think the and manage sort of this as the idea of, of a cultivated garden uh, rather than, than a purely wild place. We can harness, you know, nature's own ecology and evolution to do that, and we should. The second is just recognizing that we've tended to work against human behavior rather than actually harness it. Uh, and in fact, some of the things we've done in conservation are really, really dumb uh, in terms of uh, not really thinking about the inadvertent effects of what we are trying to do. So the very idea of, you know, making the plea for for the emaciated polar bear actually discourages people from wanting, you know, on the ice flow discourages people from wanting to solve climate change because they think the problem is too big. So they're more likely to actually not take any action at all. Uh, the idea of endangered species lists, which we need to prioritize where we are focused, what landscapes we focus on, what species we focus on, while it is a really useful tool, also has the inadvertent effect of driving up demand for those very species by the declaration of increased endangerment around what we're doing. But we don't think of behavioral science within that piece, uh, within the answers of, of, of what we're trying to do. So we're trying to bring in these additional disciplines, harnessing science, technology, harnessing the power of the market, uh, creating things that can directly address those extinction drivers uh, and try to match the speed and the scale of the problems that we have and bring a lot more people in to co-solve these problems with us. It seems like uh, from your description that part of what's working against conservation in some cases is, uh, and I'm a former journalist, just journal journalism's coverage of the lack of understanding, good science reporting, bundled up in all that. I think about a series that's really popular now, like The Tiger King, which is just kind of a train wreck uh, that sort of unfolds before your eyes, but really doesn't grapple with any of the big questions. It's more personality driven than anything. So when you watch something like Tiger King and you see coverage time and again that doesn't in, in any way touch on the bigger, more serious questions, that's got to be a source of frustration. Yeah, I've specifically chosen not to watch The Tiger King. First of all, I love sci-fi because I think sci-fi and people like Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, you know, a great writer, uh, it, you know, and people like Gene Roddenberry give us images of what kind of technologies we can develop and how do we bring it back to conservation, uh, first of all, right? So so I, I, I already have a bias in terms of what I look at. I look at planet Earth and, and uh, look at nature shows. I grew up on nature shows. Uh, with my dad, you know, we would watch Jacques Cousteau and Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom, if people remember that. I remember uh, Jacques Cousteau. Right? Those those are amazing. And uh, and that's probably why Thane, you and I are divers and love being underwater so much. It is – the silent world is incredible. Uh, those kind of things I think are great things to kind of connect people. One of the things those shows are missing I think is understanding how little uh, – 
is left that needs to be protected, how much work goes into understanding nature and the work of scientists and the work that we are doing. And, you know, part of what you're looking for, I imagine you're looking for, and and you're a journalist, so you understand this better than I do, is the idea of narratives that attract people, that capture people, that bring them along in the story. And I think we can do a better job of actually telling the human side of science uh, and the process around the scientific method to be able to do that uh, for what we're trying to do. And, 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 you know, I would love to see something along that lines of like going around to scientists who've been working in these places for 20 years, helping understand what they see and helping them, you know, talking to them about how they do their research and where they see the opportunities, uh, that are out, out there. Um, and doing the same thing with the entrepreneurs as well, obviously, as you guys are doing. Uh, yeah. But those sh- those shows, like the immediate thought, what you know, I haven't seen the show. My wife was watching the show. Uh, my concern about the my concern about the show was, oh great, you know, now X number more. There are more tigers, I think, in captivity, big cats in captivity in the U.S. than there are in the wild. More people are going to seek to to try to get them. U.S. is number two in the world in wildlife trafficking. So you know, we are not. You know, we we can get on our high horses, but we are not, we are also driving part of the problem as well within what we're trying to do. One other aspect is freaking conservation is super depressing, right? Like I always like to make the joke. I'm the, I'm an extinction biologist. That is my training. I've been interested in extinction since I was like 11. I am the last person you want to invite to dinner because I will depress any good dinner party, any good, you know, any good meal you want to have, I will spew the facts that will make you want to drown yourself in alcohol. And I will say about the Tiger King, if if there is any message, you do get incredibly depressed about the wildlife trade in the United States. I mean, it does. I, I guess I should give it that credit that you, you it's it's a very depressing look at, at the people that are involved and the and the lack of any ethics or moral compass. And I don't think it's unique to the U.S., right? I think this is an issue. Although I think for people who are, you know, the people who live in local environments that are closest in participating in poaching and participating in wildlife trade, for them, it is a lack of choices that frequently they have, right? And one of the other challenges we have in conservation is we also ask those people who are closest to the problem, who can least afford to address the problem, to bear the greatest cost and the greatest risk. You know, while we in the United States and in Europe and in, you know, other places like Australia have literally grown our economies and grown our wealth by the death of our own environment, our own uh, species, and that of other countries, the United States and Central America, the Europeans across Central Africa, the Australians in Australia, uh, and some of the surrounding regions. And, you know, we had uh, a little over 100 years ago, we had the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, you know, the, the only marsupial, you know, tiger that coexisted with humans and roamed the planet at that time. Uh, those are kind of extraordinary things. Uh, we wiped them out. In the United States, we wiped up the passenger pigeon that would cross over our skies for three days, blackening the sky because they were in the hundreds of millions or more, and we took them to zero. And that is extraordinary. 
for me that that we could do that. So, Alex, one of the things I'm listening to you talk, and you're you're a scientist entrepreneur, as I would sort of call myself one. And I think one of the things that is intriguing about your entrepreneurship is that you were able to bring it to the U.S. government, <laughs> which most people don't think of as being terribly entrepreneurial, although it seems like now more than ever, now more than ever, we really need some entrepreneurship to deal with the pandemic and find ways to save people's lives and, and uh, let people get back to their lives, too, and, and to work that they find meaningful. Uh, but when you were talking about you know the, the countries and talking about the need for compelling narratives, I couldn't help but think of your book, The Snow Leopard Project. And, you know, one of the questions that obviously comes up when someone thinks about Afghanistan is why is conservation high on the priority list there when there's all these other problems? So can you talk a little bit about that and what compelled you? I mean, the project itself and, and the book, um, but, but why conservation in Afghanistan versus so many other things. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And thank you um, for asking it. So one, just just to give you some insights into Afghanistan, part of the reason I wrote the book is the imagery that we have of Afghanistan is fundamentally one of decimated landscapes, treeless landscapes, devoid of life, uh, places of sorrow, places of lack of opportunity, uh, you know, the words that come to mind in terms of the coverage of Afghanistan is things like morass, right? Unsolvable. This place has been in conflict for 30 years and it'll be in conflict for another 30. And that's how we see it, right? So telling the story, first of all, about a place that at one point had more cat species than all of sub-Saharan Africa, right? That literally was a biological Silk Road that united wildlife from uh, Asia, Eurasia, in particular Europe and, and Asia. So things like the, the brown bear, essentially a similar subspecies to the grizzly bear in the United States, wolves, uh, jackals, things from uh, Indo-Malaysia, so macaques that we have in the country, th species from Africa, like hyenas that exist in this country. And the fact that there used to be tigers in Afghanistan, lions uh, most likely in Afghanistan, there's still potentially cheetahs in Afghanistan, and a whole, you know snow leopards and Persian leopards and caracals and these amazing cats called palace cats. All this wildlife that exists there, all this wildlife that's there, we never see. We never see mention. We never see the image of. The, the second reason is this wildlife, right, this biological Silk Road that is created by the exceptional topography of Afghanistan, which includes things like, you know, coniferous and deciduous forests enveloping these, you know, steep mountainsides, not, not unlike the Sierras in California uh, or the Pacific Northwest, the Cascades, um, places that look like, that are similar to, you know, the Himalayas as you would see it in China and Nepal and Pakistan and Bhutan, right? It's the Western end of the Himalayas. This, this amazing, you know, catastrophe of mountains that all collided together to create something called the Pamir Knot and glaciers that just sort of tumble down these amazing mountainsides into these broad U-shaped uh, uh, 
valleys and then, you know, red sand deserts, areas that look like the Grand Canyon all created this incredible topography. But the other thing was for people where you had millions of individuals who were literally refugees in other countries, in Pakistan and Iran and the Emirates, uh, and, you know, for 30 years, for them to come back, for them to reclaim their identity, protecting the wildlife was a way to do so. And this is one of the reasons that we actually benefit. But there is a more fundamental need, which is, you know, in Afghanistan, we had this problem in our aid that the majority of our aid actually went to the cities. But the majority of the people in Afghanistan, when I was there, it was 80 percent. Today, it's 70 percent live in the countryside. So the very factors that we were doing to manage something like the rangelands, which helped this incredible species called the Marco Polo sheep, which I call the Princess Leia sheep because they have these they're the biggest of the mountain sheep and they had these huge horns, six feet long, two meters long if you're in Europe, right? That that if you follow the curve of the horn, uh, that were literally described by Marco Polo in his book, you know, Travels, uh, that that those rangelands also have to keep help keep the livestock that local people, the domestic livestock that people live on, that get them through the winter alive. So the very survival of the people in Afghanistan depends on that natural environment. And in some ways, Afghanistan was the easiest place I actually did conservation around the world, despite things like landmines and IEDs uh, and uh, kidnappings. Uh, it was actually great because people intuitively understood what we were doing was restoring their identity, you know, you know, and protecting things that actually they needed. And then the last bit was it is really hard to teach concepts like democracy in a place like Afghanistan. So if you actually could tie it to something that that they live with in their daily lives, how do you govern the lands around a national park? How do you govern the water that you are dependent on? And then allow the Afghans to set up the institutions that they run, not us as Westerners, but they run to be able to do that and then help them build up economies that reward them for doing that. You are not only rebuilding an economy, you are, tourism, by the way, in 1979 was the number two source of income for this country, but you are, you, you are also building democracy and governance at the same time. Where do you think the potential of technology and innovation uh, for conservation are the greatest? The simplest and the easiest way is leverage is what I would use. And I'll give one great example. You know, we work in a, what I would describe as a collective with a lot of other like-minded conservation tech companies. So uh, I sit on their boards. Uh, I raise money for them. Uh, I help them uh, get exposure. Uh, and then through our own work, we give away about anywhere from a quarter to a third of our annual budget to support all kinds of new companies that are coming out in, that are impactful for conservation. So just in terms of leverage, if we think about something like machine vision, machine learning, where you can amplify the power of a single conservationist in terms of the number of species they can monitor, the number of places they can enforce, and the deployment of their resources, that is incredibly powerful. Like that just fundamentally 
all of a sudden you can deal with the fact that you don't have enough money, right? Because you can then deploy that money in a fundamentally different way. And one example I like to give is uh, a company called Wild Me. Uh, and Wild Me is is pretty incredible. That they started uh, as a, a mathematician who's now at Ohio uh, State University, a who also does machine vision imagery analysis, a NASA scientist who was developed who was who had taken a, a, an equation that was developed for the Hubble. Uh, space telescope to figure out where it was in space and what it was looking at. Uh, the database scientist from Dell uh, and a whale shark biologist from Australia started trying to understand how could we do better at gathering data on whale sharks. And there was somewhere between 300 and 500 whale sharks known to science. And you can tell an individual whale shark from the pattern of spots on its backs, which, you know, if you look at a whale shark, it looks a lot like a constellation. It is incredibly beautiful in, in terms of that pattern of spots, right? It is stunning. So they use this, uh, this algorithm from the NASA StarCam. They used essentially a way for citizen scientists to upload uh, photos to a site called whaleshark.org, which you can go to today. And they were able to increase, right, the number of data points and the number of individual whale sharks studied and known to science and their distributions and where they were traveling to from somewhere between three to 500 to 3000. And they were able to do it across the planet 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, anywhere there were people in the water. Particularly, they were they tended to be um, scientific researchers, dive masters, uh, but also just enthusiastic divers that were involved in it. Uh, but the, the, the next step that they took, so that was one bit of technology that made a huge difference. They then, a couple of years ago, started scanning every YouTube video for a, that was posted and uploaded for an image of a whale shark. And then they would use natural language processing to get capture the metadata, where that whale shark was, when that video was, and then they would automatically query the poster about that metadata to verify it and see if they could get additional information and then process that. And they were then able to go from 3,000 known individual individual animals who were then able to be followed consistently or followed as additional data came along to over 10,000 animals, uh, 10,000 individual whale sharks. And from that data, they went from 10 hotspots of whale sharks around the world to recognizing there were 20 hotspots that actually deserved protection for those species around the world. That was instrumental. This none of the, so much of this was unknown to science because the ability of any individual researcher or even collection of researchers to follow an animal that could disappear for long periods of time, travel extremely long distances, uh, you know, was extraordinary. We saw the same thing with eBird and just, you know, individual citizens scientists being able to give data that allowed us to understand not only the precision of the north-south migration in a way that then, you know, places like the Nature Conservancy could actually pay individual farmers for allowing their their fields to stay fallow for an extra week or two, 
right, to support the migration and actually help the migration. Uh, instead of having to buy the land, they could just rent it for a week, delay po- farming for a week. Um, but it also allowed them to understand the effects of climate change on how those migrations were changing. So there's a lot of ways there. But I think some of the more, more um, powerful ways actually come when we start thinking about replacing products uh, like like things that are feed um, as well as food and as well as fiber uh, with better alternatives, more sustainable alternatives, because then we're actually addressing the drivers. So, Alex, when you were talking about citizen science, I couldn't help thinking about my last trip to the Maldives with a shark expert and using some of the same methods that you were talking about for looking at manta rays and their unique patterns uh, and reporting that. At, at the same time, like a week ago when I was out on my property, 600 feet from anyone, not just six feet, but 600 feet from anyone, I was listening to the Sci-Fi podcast and the, the history of citizen science actually goes way, way back. And there's a lot of evidence before technology of how citizens can get involved in, in recording data, like our, our tide charts, for example, or one of the examples that uh, they were talking about on the Sci-Fi podcast, one, one of my favorites. But it seems like what you're saying is that with technology, it's possible for a lot more people to be a lot more actively involved in citizen science and particularly in conservation science. Um, would, would you agree with that? And, and what can people do if they, they want to help with uh, problems of conservation and, and protecting our, our one planet, something else that you alluded to. The people of Af- Afghanistan understand that intuitively, but I think during the pandemic, a lot of people are looking out and saying, gosh, I didn't know there were mountains here, <laughs> right? And so we're, we're actually seeing kind of some, um, you know, realization of, of what the planet is like without everybody emitting um, uh, fossil fuel uh, byproducts every single day. Well, I mean, uh, so just quite frankly, like all of us now have, you know, these many supercomputers in our pockets. But they're not just supercomputers. They're actually sensors, right, that allow us to individually monitor the environment around us and take data on the, the environment around us. We are connected in ways that we were never connected before. And that has had both good and bad uh, the bad. Uh, effects, one of which has been the rise of things like junk science, uh, some of which we're seeing around what's happening with COVID. Um, but uh, quite, but these opportunities and connections allow us to go on sites like Zooniverse. If you haven't seen that, public labs where you can actually develop low-class tools to test in your own backyards. Partic- use a tool like iNaturalist, who was developed uh, by a guy named Scott Laurie, who is a PhD student uh, uh, at Duke University. Uh, you can develop, you can use eBird. And the predecessor to eBird, right, which has been around for 100 years, were the Audubon Christmas bird counts that people would go out on Christmas Day and actually survey the bird populations. And we know what's going on because of these historical surveys that were out there. You did not need, as you pointed out, to go on the grand expeditions that we used to have to do, like Wallace did, you know, or Von Humboldt did uh, across our planet. But we actually, you know... 
people did do it even back, you know, at the turn of the the previous century um, and do that uh, across the United States and North America, uh, but also into Central America and other places around the world. And that data is invaluable for us knowing what is there and what is not there. And both those things are really, really important. Uh, Things like whalesharkorg allow you to go and participate and contribute to that whale shark database. Uh, So I think that there's increasingly a large number of ways that people can contribute. Um, We're trying to develop a device uh, to use testing for things like fish traceability. And one idea we had was, could we actually uh, uh, crowdfund uh, the distribution of the device to look at the rates of seafood fraud uh, around the country, which are already, you know, we've done a lot of the tests for other organizations, including Oceana, in terms of the actual molecular work to look at rates of seafood fraud, which range around 30%. So 30% of the seafood, the fish you're buying is probably not what they say it is. And then some things like red stamper, it's somewhere between 88 to 92%. And red stamper is something like 12 different species for the FDA. So people are getting ripped off and they're getting ripped off in a way that actually hurts fisheries. Uh, so being able to have citizen scientists to figure out who are the biggest transgressors, uh, where do we need to focus our efforts can be really powerful around what we're doing. And then being able to just get people aware of what is going on in their environment. I think the power of that is really important. And then being able to organize individuals uh, to be able to participate in that, um, as well as be aware of sort of new opportunities to create uh, new economies around new uh, products. Um, and one of the companies we supported was this great company called New Way Foods, came through one of our challenges. Uh, they were uh, two individuals. It was a, it was a Scripps Oceanography Institute at UCSD oceanographer, and it was uh, a Carnegie Mellon material scientist who developed a uh, synthetic uh, shrimp made out of red algae that looks like shrimp, tastes like shrimp, uh, cooks like shrimp, and is you know now vegan and kosher, so double bonus, but doesn't involve the slavery, uh, the um, bycatch, which is you know generally when you catch shrimp wild shrimp, 20 pounds of shrimp of fish are thrown away for every pound of shrimp you, you catch. Doesn't involve things like mangrove clearance that goes into shrimp farming in places like Ecuador. Doesn't involve some of the pollution that's involved with 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 uh, the farming of shrimp. Uh, all those factors are now sort of, we can leapfrog across all those things, but you got to raise awareness. Uh, all these things are now sort of possible for us. So how do you see the challenges that you guys have launched, which I, I think are quite ambitious in a, a lot of ways? The Artisanal Mining Grand Challenge is one that I, I know some about uh, because you kindly invited me to be part of the launch of that. Um, how do you see them stimulating awareness and also, I think, more important, importantly, coming up with, with uh, new enterprises that can both solve conservation and create sustainable livelihoods for people? Yeah, that is a that is a great question. Um, challenges and prizes, right? Yeah, they're they're interesting mechanisms, uh, and they're not perfect for every problem that you're doing. If you know the exact pathway that you should follow, uh, and you've got a you know challenge or a prize is not 
really the way to generate that pathway. It's particularly where there's a market failure, where it's unclear what pathway you should follow, where you want to look for ideas and solutions that might be in adjacent spaces and invite new disciplines in to co-create and co-solve solutions uh, to contribute to those solutions with you. This is one of their advantages in being able to do so. The other one is you get a landscape analysis of what the innovation space looks like, and you you can actually raise awareness around those. But the process of a challenge uh, involves, you know, it is not just about the prize purse, right? It is fundamentally about actually the, it's not just about the money, but it is about the recognition that the challenge brings that actually captures the imagination of people and entices them to compete is part of the reason that we want to use it. And that has the added effect of just raising awareness about the issue itself. People love competitions. They love games. They love watching people compete for these ideas, particularly where you can allow people to sort of envision new ideas. How do we replace fish and fish feed? How do we, you know, transform this process that is actually how we get the minerals for our cell phones and our computers, but is done by, you know, impoverished miners that are decimating the Amazon to be able to do it while still giving those individuals a livelihood. How do we, how do we fundamentally reinvent air conditioning? Cause it's the number one thing we could do for climate change and improve the technology. Uh, those are all things, you know, that you can capture people's imagination around. That is kind of the hope. They are really ambitious goals. And part of it is getting above, getting above the, the noise uh, of kind of the everyday media to really capture that attention. And we do that in part by building coalitions of groups to work with us and sharing the credit around because we're all in it together. Wonderful. I really applaud the work you're doing. Where can people learn more about Conservation X Labs, Alex? Yeah, you can go to conservationnextlabs.org and uh, there's ways to actually engage in lots of different things that we are doing. Uh, One of the other things we have going on right now, uh, for instance, is a prototyping prize. It's uh, if you have an idea, uh, in this case, it's around behavior change for conservation. You can just uh, go to the site and propose your idea of a technology that harnesses behavior change for a conservation purpose. Um, the advantage of that is uh, we'll give you, based on an idea, $3,500 to build a prototype. And then we actually, uh, if you build that prototype and we think, and we'll give you know 20 people that amount of money, we'll give you $20,000 and then we'll start working on actually helping, helping you bring that to reality. Uh, and we've seen people do with very, I mean, $3,500 is not a lot of money, but people have taken that opportunity to build uh, incredible, powerful technologies uh, to solve some really big problems. Um, And we've been really impressed by that. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This has been amazing uh, spending time with you, hearing your thoughts. Um, Thanks for doing the great work that you're doing. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Really a delight, uh, Alex, and uh, keep up the good work. Everyone stay safe, be well, and let's uh, end this pandemic and uh, end human-induced extinction. This wraps up another episode of Line of Sight Podcast. I'm Don Heider, Executive Director of the Markle Center for Applied Ethics. And I'm Thane Kreiner, Miller Center's Executive Director. 